0: Please be seated. Uh, I got to catch up on some binge TV watching and my preaching break and one of the TV shows I watched was the HBO miniseries on the Chernobyl disaster. I don't know if any of you have seen that. I'm old enough to remember when it happened and I remembered it was a big deal, but when I watched the video or watched this miniseries again, uh, it really brought out the, how catastrophic that event was it, where there was a series of, of uh, operator error that put this nuclear reactor in a super dangerous state and then because of some divine design flaws there was an exposure there's an explosion that left the core the nuclear core open to the air and it started a, a nuclear chain reaction that caused a literal nuclear dumpster fire to burn for nine days, spreading nuclear contamination over and around a perimeter of 39,000 miles that reached all the way into Western Europe. And maybe the worst part, of it, of watching the miniseries, was seeing how the Soviet government responded to this catastrophic event. They basically doubled down and at first they lied and tried to protect, uh, tried to protect and save face to the world because a, a major scale nuclear disaster could never happen in the Soviet Union. And so they lied about what was happening and how dangerous it was and told everybody that they were safe and it was not, everything was good. And at the same time, The people who were trying to tell the truth, they demonized them and and tried to censor them, and shut them down. Uh, But as the fallout continued, uh, it began to get confusing, because uh, people began to get sick, and people began to die. And eventually, because some brave scientists risked their lives, the truth came out. And I was watching that, I was thinking to myself, man, as scary as that is, as scary as a full-scale nuclear disaster is uh, for us to go through, and this is something you know that was always, for San Diego, in our mind's eye, when San Onofre was open, was always a possibility for those of us old enough to remember when that plant was active. As scary as that was, uh, as terrifying as that is, there is even a worse disaster that we are living inside the perimeter of right now, and that is the catastrophic Uh, effects of the fall of man and the catastrophic effects of sin uh, that are devastating our world Uh, and the fallout the fallout of sin that is causing all kinds of sickness uh, and death and most people in the world are completely confused about why the world is so messed up and why things are so hard and why things go the way they do. Uh, And at the same time, the primary effort of the enemy, the primary effort of the devil in that endeavor is to deceive you, is to fool us, is to present evil as good and good as evil, to convince us that he is good, true, and beautiful, and that God and God's law And the wisdom in the Bible is what is truly evil and repressive. And that is like the main project of our culture right now is to bring us into that propaganda and to create a sense of hopelessness for anybody who would dare resist it. And Revelation, the book of Revelation, is God's countermeasure of that to the church. Um, Revelation shows us just the, uh, the utterly terrifying and vile, bestial nature of Satan and the evil forces that are attacking this world. And at the same time, also shows us the absolute control of God as a chess master moving history to his desired end and the destruction of evil uh, through, that, through that process. Reminding us that no matter how hot it gets, No matter how hot that fire of the fall gets, we are safe and protected in God's care. And he is never out of control of any of that. So how how does God do that? How does Revelation do that for us? It does it in these series of these symbolic uh, vision sequences that show us this truth of what Satan is really like and what God is is really doing, and so before we get into those and start dissecting those visions in earnest, the first thing we need to do is figure out how do they work? And second thing we need to figure out is what is the story that they tell? What's the story they tell? And the third thing is how we should respond to that. What does it mean for us in everyday life? How does that help us? And why is it God's gracious blessing to us? So that's what we're gonna look at today. First thing understanding how the visions work. Uh, One of my favorite movies is a movie called Minority Report. Uh, I'm not really a Tom Cruise fan, but somebody brought me to that movie at a certain time in my life where I really identified with a lot of the movie, and it still kind of freaks me out to this day watching it. But in this movie, there are these these children who were born to drug-addicted mothers and part of uh, the damage that was done to them were, is that they are able to see detailed and graphic images in the future, especially of violent crime, like a video. Uh, and, they, and, and so, realizing what these kids could do, uh, the government became, uh, set up what they called the pre crime division and set the, what they called these kids, called they called them precogs, precognition, in these floating tanks, and they hooked their minds up to video screens. And as they had these visions, it would show graphic images of video of exactly what was going to happen in the future, and then they would go and arrest the person before he committed the crime, thus pre-crime division. Graphic, detailed images of what was going to happen in the future. Now, if you asked probably 90, maybe 95% of people in the world, how do the visions in Revelation operate? They would say, just like that. God gave John these detailed visions of, of real, specific historical events in the future. He, some of them he translated into uh, his time in space and the way he was able to understand them, but the, he was seeing graphic images of future events, and that's how Revelation works. Well, let's try that out. Let's run that out with some of these, with some of these vision sequences and see if that actually if even makes sense. Uh, and some of them... Maybe, but as we go along, I want you to see what happens as we go along. So let's start with an easy one. Let's start with, let's think about Revelation chapter 11. There's the vision of two witnesses uh, in Jerusalem witnessing for God for 1260 days. There's a lot of like debate on who those people are. Like A lot of people believe those are actually two people and that uh, it's maybe Elijah, maybe it's Moses, maybe it's Enoch. There's all kinds of debate about who that might be, uh, but that's seen as two people, even though in the earlier parts of the book, the witnesses are clearly defined as the church. And when, whenever in Revelation, we get a real clear definition of a symbol, we should, we should really hold on to that because they're few and far between. That's an easy interpretation. However, maybe, right? Could be two guys, could be two, two prophets reincarnated or brought back to life or come down into Jerusalem. It could be, maybe, uh, but let's move on. How about revelation chapter 9 there's a vision of locusts that are like horses locusts the size of horses uh, they're ready in a raid for battle they have golden crowns human faces women's hair lion's teeth iron breastplates and tails like scorpions now maybe some people argue that might be Apache ta- attack helicopters. If you were living in the 4th century, you would have seen these as n- nomadic raiders that were coming into your village who had long hair and, and battle garb and iron chest plates. And uh, We talked about this in some of the first sermons that we gave, but it starts to get a little bit less likely that this is an actual vision. Uh, well, let's move on. How about... Revelation 13, a beast with ten horns and seven heads rising up out of the sea. And this is the last one I'm going to say because almost everybody recognizes that this one is symbolic. At a a certain point in time, if you really look at the visions in Revelation, you have to get, get to the point where you realize you just have to admit, okay, uh we're not willing to go and just say revelation is just a straight up work of science fiction there's not going to really be a beast with seven heads rising up out of the sea at some point everyone has to admit these are visions that they're symbolic they're analogies for something and and that's true with all of them so here's here's the point if if john is not an ancient version of a precog who is seeing these graphic images of future events. How do these visions work? What do they do? What are they doing for us? Uh, and to understand that, let's look at, let's listen to Revelation 1-1 again. Listen to the specific words, I'll highlight them as we go through. This is a little bit technical, this first point, so stick with me, put your thinking caps on, take a deep breath. I promise when we get into points two and three, it'll be easier, easier to grasp, but let's, let's think hard about this for a minute, okay? Uh, So let's read, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things which must soon take place, and he made it known, a better, really a better stricter translation of that would be, he signified it, it's the word sign that John uses in his gospel for the signs that Jesus did, which were again, pictures of a greater spiritual reality. Uh, he made it known, or he signified it by sending his angel to his servant John. now here's what's so important about that. those phrases, revelation to show, made known uh, signified all of those verses all of those important keywords together happen in only other one place in the Bible, and that is in Daniel chapter two, Daniel chapter two, specifically in the story about King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He has this dream of this giant statue with a head of gold and a chest of silver, legs of bronze, feet of clay, Uh, and then a giant stone is somehow carved out of the earth without human hands and smashes the statue, and then the stone grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. And then Daniel interprets that dream. He interprets it. And how does he interpret it? Does he come to Nebuchadnezzar and say, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, in the near future, a giant statue will be built on the plains of Babylon with a golden head and a silver chest. No, he doesn't say that. He says these are symbols of great kingdoms that will rule the world. And the symbol of the stone, we later find out, is a picture of Jesus who destroys the kingdoms of man and then sets himself up as the mountain that rules over the whole earth. So what's the point? What's the point? The statue is a symbol The statue is an analogy. The statue teaches us supernatural truths. It's not a literal uh, vision of a future historical event. And because John ties that vision in Daniel so closely together with the visions in Revelation, we can be assured that's how the visions in Revelation work. They are, this is what they are. You can write this down if you're taking notes. The visions in Revelation, uh, they give us symbolic, the vision sequences show us the principles and patterns of current spiritual warfare. That's what they communicate to us. They teach us about how spiritual warfare is playing out in the world, what Satan is doing, what Satan is like, how God is countering that, and how God is bringing war to his enemies. That's how the visions operate. They're symbolic vision sequences that show us the principles and patterns of current spiritual warfare. So, now that we know that, Now that we know how they work, we can go on and ask the question, what's the story they tell? And that's going to be, I'm going to tell you this in two parts. First, from the satanic perspective. Uh, Understanding the story the visions tell, part one. Uh, If Revelation gives us symbolic vision sequences that show us the principles and patterns of current spiritual warfare, what do these patterns and principles teach us? What story do they tell? The first thing they tell us, is the utter, terrifying, and vile, and bestial nature of Satan, of the enemy. I don't know, when you were growing up, maybe you were in, uh, as you watched Godzilla movies, and I'm, I'm sure you all did, of course, were Godzilla fans. Maybe you are, maybe you're a Godzilla fan, maybe you're more of a Mothra person. Maybe you're more like a Rodan kind of guy or gal. Me, personally, uh, uh, I have always been a King Ghidorah fan. King Ghidorah is, is, uh, is, is the giant, is the massive, he's the arch enemy of Godzilla. He is the massive three-headed dragon-like monster with giant wings uh, who is the arch nemesis of, of Godzilla. Uh, and here's why I'm bringing this up. In the newest, uh, the newest version of Godzilla, King of Monsters, there's this scene where Go- uh, King Ghidorah is in hibernation, sealed, frozen in ice under Antarctica, uh, and, they are, and the, there's a mad scientist who's trying to wake up all the monsters. And the scene where King Ghidorah comes up out of the sea ice under Antarctica with smoke and explosions and water spray, and lights, and backlighting. Well, he comes up out of that sea ice and raises his three heads and spreads out his wings in terrifying array, you get a quick, I mean, it's scary. It, like, sets you back for a minute. It is clear that there is no human defense against that terrifying and that powerful of an enemy. Now, we all know King Ghidorah is not real. Most likely. Uh, why does it freak you out? Why do you see that vision? Why do you see that movie and you see that terrifying image? What does it? Why does it still scare you a little bit? Why does it cause a little bit of a heart palpitation, maybe even a little bit of a, a nightmare if you're not ready for it? It's because it presents that idea to us of an utterly vile and reprehensible bestial image that cannot be defeated, and it sparked something out of our subconscious mind that we recognize there is something like that. There is something like that in the world. Here's the point. Ishiro Honda, the creator of the monster series, of Godzilla, of... Uh, Ghidorah of all of those monsters, he was making an analogy. Those monsters represented the utter destructive power of nuclear war. In 1964, in Japan, that was a live issue. They had experienced the fallout and the destruction of nuclear warfare. For us as Americans, when the Godzilla series came over here, we were clueless. And that was part of Ishiro Honda's brilliance. He was able to present that into American culture in 1964 uh, and kind of sneak it in. This is what you did. Check it out. Um, well, this is what we've lived through. And so it was a those monsters were a picture, they were an analogy of something that was real. That was utterly terrifying. That was so destructive. Uh, and in the same way, that's how the images of, the, of, of Satan act in Revelation. And I'm going to give you one guess. Uh, Ishiro Honda pulled from a lot of different uh, things to create the images of the monsters and to create an uh, image of King Ghidorah as well, from the Hydra, from a lot of things. But there was one image particularly that he borrowed to create that monster. I'll give you one guess. Anybody want to guess what it might be? And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? He thought that seven heads would be a bit much, so he kind of pared it down to three, but imagery is the same. And here's the thing it's not an image of nuclear war, it's an image of something far worse. It's an image of the utter catastrophic disaster of the breach, not of a nuclear core, but of creation and creator of all the, the catastrophic consequence of what happens in creation when God separates from it. The fallout of that. Uh, the destruction of that. And Satan's goal is to convince you that none of that's true. Satan's primary goal is to lie to us, to lie to us about what's occurring and to present himself as good and true and beautiful, to present his ideas, his uh, to present to us dangerous traps that are like spider webs and convince us that they're harmless so that we get stuck into it. Paul says Satan disguises him as an angel of light, and Satan is a master. I mean, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Satan is a supernatural intelligence. He knows more about what makes us tick than anyone other than God. He knows exactly what will entice our brokenness what he can lay out before us, what he can lay out that looks like freedom, that looks like liberation, that looks like fulfillment. Uh, he's perfect at laying things out in front of us culturally that entice our broken nature and draw us into destruction. So God, in Revelation, by showing us these images of Satan in in ways that are utterly vile and bestial in nature, is saying this is what it's really like. It is not liberation. It is not freedom. It will not bring you peace. The venom of it will at first dull your mind, but it will suck you in and suck you dry. It will break you and destroy you because that is Satan's purpose. And so God, the first thing... The story that these visions tell is how utterly wicked and grotesque Satan is and what he's doing in the world as God's mercy to us to keep us away from the traps, to save us. If you you just had a long, hard day at work uh, and there was a a, a pitcher of cool water, you might be tempted to, to refresh yourself in that water. But if someone was to tell you that water is drugged, And that water will cause you to go into a spiritual stupor so that you will forget who God is and what is good and will seek security and evil and destruction. You would stay away from that water, no matter how thirsty you might be, and find a better sense, a better refreshment. That's the first purpose of these vision sequences, to show how wicked and evil Satan truly is. The second second part, of the story that the visions tell, the second and greater purpose is that these visions tell the power and victory of God through Jesus. The utter power and victory of God through Jesus in history. Um, This might come as a surprise, but not all of the destruction that we see in the book of Revelation, uh, not all of the warfare is caused by the devil. in fact maybe most of it is God's warfare against the devil in the world. Um, he is making war on the enemy, cutting off options, removing supply, uh, blessings, provision, making it harder and harder and harder for Satan and and, and those aligned with him to continue with their rebellion, always handing, holding out mercy and forgiveness, and yet driving that rebellion to an utter end at judgment. I remember when I, most of you know my story, when I was coming to the end of my brutal rebellion against God, uh, there was one thing that scared me more than anything else. It wasn't getting It wasn't getting killed, it wasn't getting arrested, it wasn't getting shot, it wasn't anything other than I knew that eventually God would start to put terrible roadblocks and catastrophes in my path as an act of mercy to get me to stop my foolishness. And you know what? He did. He did. Terrifying. Because I was chosen by God and because He is giving me salvation, those things were merciful. Uh, had I not, those things would be terrible. The visions in Revelation, many of them are pictures of God doing just that to the rebellion against Him. The very beginning, next week, we're going to talk about uh, chapter six Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. The white horse rides out to conquer and to be conquered. A lot of people think that must be Satan because there's so much destruction that comes with it. No, 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 that's Jesus. He is riding out, bringing destruction upon his enemies. Uh, Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted verses about Jesus and his work in the New Testament. It says the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's revelation in one sentence. That's what Jesus is doing here and now in this age to, to protect us and to save us and to bring history to God's appointed end. Um, and it's happening now. We talk, well, we are committed to Christ-centered preaching at our church, meaning we talk a lot about what the life of Jesus, what it means for us, that his life gives us perfect righteousness. The death of Christ cleanses us from all of our sin. His resurrection is our guarantee that we will be resurrected into glory. Uh, His ascension into heaven, it assures us that he is now reigning uh, and praying for us as our intercessor. There's another part of Christ's work that theologians call the session of Jesus, meaning that Jesus is now sitting enthroned in royal power, bringing war against his enemies, uh, and saving us from this evil age. And that's what Revelation is also about. The greater and second, uh, second big picture uh, of, of these visions is God bringing war against Satan. And doesn't that, I mean, doesn't that give you a whole different perspective when you think about it that way? In an age and in a culture where all we hear about is the decline of the church, the shrinking of the church, uh, the church, and we're on the wrong side of history, and everything that's said against the church is said in a little bubble of culture that's only going to last for a little while. Uh, If you look at the history, the church has outlived every empire of man and will continue to do so until Jesus returns. We've got nothing to worry about. We have nothing to fear from the cultural narrative that's trying to convince us that things are going really bad. Have you ever ever taken off in an airplane in the midst of a bad storm? And it's raining, it's a really bad storm, you take off, and it's dark, and it's turbulent, and it's shaking, the plane's shaking, and then at some point, you, you, you pass through the clouds and you get above the storm and the sun comes out and it's beautiful, shining and everything. All that turbulence is below you. That's what, that's what life is like for us now. That's what the kind of life that we live in. Uh, we are now, we're in the turbulence. We're in the jet. We're taking off. We're getting shook up and shook around. Uh, but, but, there's going to come a time where we bust through that cloud top and it's all behind us. And that is God's doing. That's not something that we're striving after. That is something that God has promised us will happen. You know, in the midst of that, God promises we're going to get shook up. It's shaky. Maybe some of you are feeling some shakiness. But here's the thing. The only thing that God allows to get shook in that are the things that can be shaken. Your idols, your sin, the things that distract you from the true power of God. In that ascent, God is shaking us up and shaking off those things which weigh us down. And he's replacing them with light, with hope, with beauty, with real goodness, with real truth. Uh, And so he promises not only to shake off all that stuff, but he also promises that we are going to break through those clouds real soon, real soon. That's what Jesus is doing for us right now. He's already won the battle. Revelation is the story of Jesus' victory, putting all of his enemies under his feet. And so we have this tension as we're in time but revelation helps us to look past time and into eternity and gives us peace by knowing the big story. That's what Jesus is doing for us right now. So how do we, last, in conclusion, conclusion, what does that mean for us? What does that mean? How do we respond to that, to all of that? And the first thing is is to be uh, what Peter, what uh what Peter calls being sober-minded. Being sober-minded, uh, that's what that means. It means to be aware of where we are, that, uh, to know, to, to, to contemplate that, that we understand that we are inside the perimeter of a cataclysmic disaster. And that will, like, help you set up realistic expectations for what life's going to be like. Uh It doesn't call us to be paranoid, but it does call us to be cautious, to know that uh, our hearts and our inner voices are not the best place to go to recognize truth, but only in God's word. That is where he's telling us what's really happening, and that's what we can trust. Uh, And so it helps us to set our expectations for this life accordingly. I was talking to a friend yesterday at a wedding. Um, and we were talking about like just all the hardships that we're experiencing in life, and uh, they were, ta- you know, they had some pe- friends that they knew that were going through real trouble, and you know, we personally have gone through some really hard times recently. And if I was confused about where I am right now. If I was confused into thinking that this was somehow an expression of heaven or that there was no trouble or that there was no warfare or that God uh, had somehow promised to keep me immune and safe from all of the collateral damage and, 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 and trouble of this world, I would be really discouraged. But realizing that where I am, really, make no mistake, we are in a war zone. And that's going to affect you, not only in your own sin, but sin in the world against you. Uh, and so, look, recognizing that helps us to have a better expectation of what life is going to be like, and it, helps us, it gives us hope. Helps us to not be so distraught over things that happen to make sense of it. But even more than that, it allows us in the midst of that to rejoice in certain hope because we got the end of the book, and God tells us what's going to happen. If you ever been on a plane that's taken off in a storm, and you're in that turbulence and darkness, there's two kinds of passengers on that plane. There's the people who are like white-knuckling it on, uh, on, their, on the armrests with their seatbelts cranked all the way down. And then there's, and then there's the, the passengers who are just like reading the book, hanging out, know the th- What's the difference? They know what it is. They're going to get through that turbulence. They're going to get up through the clouds. It's going to happen pretty quick, so they don't have to stress out. And we can do the same. We know the end of the story. We know Jesus' protection is over us right now, so we can relax. We can rest in Christ's protection, in his promises, knowing that he is going to get us and break us through those clouds and that real soon for all of us, we will be with him forever in power and glory. Amen. Uh, which frees us up to help others along the way since we're safe then we can now dedicate our lives to serving those around us, uh, patching each other up on the plane as we go up, <laughs> uh, loving one another as Jesus has called us to do because we know the end. We know the end from the beginning. We win. Amen.